I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Now, those are probably some of the most intense, provocative words ever spoken by a sitting US president. It was scandalous at the time. Bill Clinton, in January of 1998, fronted the nation and spoke those words. It was a denial of an affair he had had with uh, his young White House intern, Monica Lewinsky. And for the next eight months, he maintained his cover-ups and he maintained his narrative. But by August of that year, the show was over. The truth had come out and Bill Clinton stood in front of the nation in a televised address and he admitted, he confessed his adultery, his unfaithfulness to his wife, Hillary. And this is how we described it. He said it was a critical lapse in judgment and a personal failure. A critical lapse in judgment and a personal failure. Now, I'm not using this as an example to say Bill Clinton is the worst man who's ever lived. It's just an example to show what we all do. Bill couldn't bring himself to say the word. A critical lapse in judgment, a personal failure. What do we call them? Mistakes, misdemeanors, errors, personal failures, moral failures, a fall from grace, an indiscretion. We just don't want to say the word. It's too stark. It's too serious. What am I talking about? I'm talking about sin. Sin. It's a word that has almost evaporated from the world today, from the vocabulary of the world today. And I think one of the reasons why we reach for euphemisms, we reach for other words to describe the things that we've done, what we've thought, we've said, is because we want to keep it on a horizontal level. If your sin, if your misdemeanor, your indiscretion is only on this level between humanity or, or between you and, and an object, totally voids the connection between you and God. If, if God doesn't exist or if what you've done has no bearing on him, then it can just be a misdemeanor. It can just be an error. But the thing about sin is its primary bearing, the most offensive thing about it is that its biggest effect is on God. Sin is rebellion against a holy God. And contrary to Mr. President's uh, personal failure, what we see in Scripture is when King David had his affair with Bathsheba and then had her husband murdered, what was his response? It wasn't an indiscretion. It wasn't a lapse in judgment. He says to God in Psalm 51, God against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David got it. Mr. Clinton didn't get it. And I think far too often we don't get it. Sin is pervasive. It is horrific. It is vile. And I don't know if I truly grasp the depth of its horror. Do we truly understand this thing that we are born into, that lives within us and stays with us throughout our lives, even though, yes, Jesus, for those who become Christians, where sin doesn't have its power over us, we still experience it effects every single day. And I think this is so critical. My task today, I feel, is unenviable but critical to bring the horror of the fall and the, the detestability of what sin has done to humanity and creation to full effect. Because I think if we don't get it, if we have an inadequate understanding of sin, then our love for God is watered down. Our affection for Jesus is diminished and our appreciation for the cross just isn't there. 
I think there's a lot at stake to understand sin. But what is it? In Scripture, in 1 John 3, 4, John says sin is lawlessness. The theologian Wayne Grudem defines it as a failure to conform to God's moral law, not only in action and in attitude, but also in our moral nature. But what is it in its essence? I think the best, uh, the best dealing with sin is found in Paul's letter to the church in Rome where he writes, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness because what is known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Sin here is explained as godlessness and wickedness, people who suppress the truth. And so what we can see here is that sin in its essence hates truth. It hates what is true. It hates what is right. It rejects the light and wants to engage in darkness. It is, rejects what is plain, what is obvious, what is apparent to see about God and wants to act like he's not even there. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. What we see here is that sin hates giving glory to God. It doesn't want his light. It doesn't want to give thanks to him. It doesn't want the knowledge of him. Sin is repulsed by the knowledge of God and wants to suppress it. Doesn't want to thank him. Doesn't want to glorify him for who he is, for what he gives. Sin acts as though God doesn't exist. Paul continues, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like created things. Sin is here is explained as foolishness and futility. And while it rejects God, it refuses to worship Him, it refuses to acknowledge Him as God, sin must cling to something and so it runs after counterfeits. This is the foolishness and the futility of it. It says reject God, reject the Creator and worship this thing that He made instead. Sin is foolishness and futility. And it's the charge that God brought against His people Israel through the prophet Jeremiah. He says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. God, the fountain of life, the fountain of living water, is rejected by sin, cast off to the side. And what do we do as humanity? We put a shovel in the ground and we seek to dig in the dirt of our own brokenness to find satisfaction and we find nothing holds water. This is what sin does. This is what sin is. It's the very essence of it. One theologian says, we have a deep, compelling, unshakable preference for other things rather than God. That is the bottom of sin. All sin is an offense. It's a rebellion against the most loving, holy, and perfect God. And so where did it originate? I think it's an important question to ask. And the Bible traces its origins back to the very beginning of life as we know it, to the Garden of Eden. And over the past couple of weeks, we've heard from Simon and Jenny talking about God, the Creator, who by the power of His Word brought everything into existence. And on planet Earth, He brought male and female, Adam and Eve, uh, designed to represent Him, made in God's image, uh, to rule and to reign and to represent Him on Earth. But it all went wrong right at the start. 
In Genesis 2.15, God has put Adam in the garden. He says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil stands there in the garden as a probation for Adam and Eve. God in his grace and in his love, he says, you can eat from any tree that you want. I have created this beautiful garden, this paradise for you, where you can commune with me, where we can walk together in the cool of the day. Every tree is yours, but please just don't eat this one because the day you eat from this one, you will die. Seems very, very reasonable. And Satan is introduced into the story in the form of a serpent and he comes to Eve and seeks to deceive her. God had given the commandment to Adam. Satan comes to Eve. And essentially he says to her, God's holding out on you. He's being a bit too harsh by saying you can't eat from every tree in the garden. He's twisting God's words. And he says, Eve, you know what? Reach out and grab it. You can be like God. God's holding out on you. There is so much more for you to experience. If you want deep satisfaction, you want true life, you need to reach out and take that fruit. Don't trust God. You can rule your own life. So she reaches out and she takes it. And scripture says she then gave some to her husband who was with her. Adam was there the whole time. A complete failure of his leadership as a husband. And in that moment, Adam said nothing. In that moment, that act of rebellion, everything broke. Sin entered the world and nothing would ever be the same again. It is an absolute tragedy. In one instant, they are enjoying face-to-face communion with God. I can't imagine what that would have been like, walking in a garden with God, daily seeing him face-to-face. And then in an instant, they hide from him. They hide from him. Their eyes are open. They realize their nakedness. And scripture says they put fig leaves together to hide their shame. They probably could have grabbed something else because I'm told fig leaves are rather itchy, but that's uh, not, not the point. They seek to cover and hide. And we see this effect that sin has. It affected everything. It broke our relationship with God. Where once there was open communication, what does God say? He says, Adam, where are you? broke our relationship with ourselves where once there was freedom and and just everything pure, all of a sudden it says, Adam said, I was afraid. There's brokenness in his mind. There's brokenness between each other. God says, what have you done? And Adam says, well, that woman that you put here with me, first act of throwing his wife under the bus. And then it broke our relationship with creation. God said, cursed is the ground because of what you have done. It broke everything. But worst of all, sin brought death. In Genesis 3.19, God says, for dust you are and to dust you will return. God took away his most precious gift, which is life. That is shown in their banishment from Eden. The theologian Gerhardus Voss says, expulsion from the garden, from God's presence, means expulsion unto death. The root of death is in having been sent away by God. So it's bad, right? It's really bad. Unregenerate humanity, anyone who hasn't had their sins forgiven by Jesus Christ is in a state of sin, a state of total depravity before God. 
Scripture says you are dead in your sins. You are guilty before God and deserving of an eternity separated from Him in hell. Sin is deadly. Sin is dangerous. And humanity, we are in our unregenerate state before God. We are completely unable to do anything to merit our own salvation. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. I hope the weight of this is starting to build. We can see how deadly, how dangerous, how pervasive, how vile sin is. And it indeed, it warps our ability to grasp how truly awful sin is. Augustine says that because of sin, we are curved in on ourselves. Voss said, our moral sense of God is now blunted and blinded by sin. Paul says to the Romans that, that the, the mind of flesh is hostile to God. Blunted, blinded, curved in on ourselves, hostile to God. This is the state of anyone outside of Christ. It's not a desirable state to be in. You know, last week we heard the wonder of God creating male and female in God's image, you know, that we were made to reflect God. We were made to be in good, healthy human relationships. We were made to rule with God. And this blunting and blinding of sin has damaged all of that. Simon said that if you remember that that reflection of God is like a 45 degree mirror. When people look at us, they should be able to see the reflection of God. That is the way God created things. But sin's damaged that reflection. We either seek to reflect back ourselves, our own glory. Look at me, look at what I've done. Give me all the praise. Or on the other end of the spectrum, we reflect back self-pity and low self-esteem and I'm worthless and I'm, and I'm not this, I'm not that. Both of those are affected by sin. Both of those are sin because they're not accurate reflections of God. And relationship, and I don't need to tell anyone how sin affects relationships. Every single relationship we, have, we are part of is affected, is tarnished by sin. Even in the smallest way, when, when someone takes something you said the wrong way, not the way you meant it, it's the effect of sin. A perfect relationship would have none of that. Can we see how on the most minute, small scale, sin has infected everything? And then rule, God made us to rule and to be his representative, Simon said, his governors here on earth. I think we've done a pretty poor job of that, but we'll look at that in a couple of weeks. The effects of sin are so entrenched and pervasive that we recognise it about as much as a fish recognises how wet it is. It just swims in it. Scripture says we are conceived in sin. We are born into it. It's the only thing that we know. I don't know, I haven't had a single day of my life where I haven't known sin. No one has. No one watching this message today has ever experienced a day without seeing, experiencing, feeling, looking at the effects of sin. It is all around us. We take it for granted. It's just, just like oxygen. We cannot imagine a life without it. We're slaves to it. We're so used to it, we make friends with it. We try to manage it. We use euphemisms to deny it. Sin's become just a little bit too familiar for so many of us. Some of us have our secret sins that we just indulge in on the side. No one needs to know that this, this one's just between me and this sin. 
not knowing that your daily drinking poison, sin will kill you spiritually. You know, I remember moving flat once and there was this couch we had in the corner and it stayed largely in the dark. It wasn't the brightest of flats or the lightest of flats. And the couch looked fine sitting there in the darkness. It was comfy. It was a dark color. It, it kind of fit the bill. It did what it needed to. And then it came time to move. And so we took the, the couch outside onto, onto the driveway. And as soon as it came into the sunlight, it was like, oh, that is bad. It was like faded. There's marks on it. It was like, how the heck have we been sitting on that thing for so long? I didn't even want to look at it. The couch was fine in the darkness. No one knew. You bring it out into the light to see it for what it really is. I wonder how many of us today need to bring that sin into the light. Some you've been holding on to. Some you've been doing just between you and yourself. Well, you think it's between you and yourself, but God knows. Maybe today's the day to bring it into the light. Confess it, let it, let it be seen for what it is. It's not a friend. It's not helping you. It's not bringing you life. It is stealing from you every single day. Today's the day to bring it into the light. Kill it. Please, kill it. Jesus asked you to do that. He knew the abhorrence of sin, which is why he said in the Sermon on the Mount, if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. He says, go to war against sin. It is far better for you to bring restrictions onto your life, to to reign in your desires, to, to bring discipline into your life, to get rid of something for the sake of holiness in the kingdom of God, rather than to do whatever you want, indulge in whatever you want and be in danger of eternal separation from him. Jesus said it is that serious. Peter said that sin wages war against your soul. It's not a friend. It's not something to be dabbling in. It's not something to be, oh yeah, I guess we all live with sin. I'm just gonna have to be okay with this one. It wants to kill you. Spiritually, it wants to take everything that you have. It wants to ruin your life. And left unchecked, it will. Deal with it. Take it to Jesus. Your sin wages war on our souls and has ravaged this world. And when we look around the world and we see the pain, we see what's happening in Ukraine, we're grieving the effects of sin. When we get frustrated by uh, government structures, social structures that make the rich richer and the poor poorer, we are lamenting the effects of sin. When we see women and children continue to be trafficked around the world, we are grieving the effects of sin. When a loved one died, you are grieving the effects of sin. When you're experiencing conflict in your marriage, that is the effect of sin. When you are lonely and you're single that is an effect in your singleness that is an effect of sin it touches everything we don't know what life is like without it humanity is sick from the inside and we clutch at straws for a solution you know there's a myth a common uh, phrase I hear today is that humanity is on an upward trajectory you know in eventually in time because of education and technology we will become more moral we'll become a more humane society but the 20th century was the bloodiest century in history more people died in the 20th century than at any other point in history Yes, we are advancing incredibly in technology and and high-speed internet and smartphones have made global connection and productivity that much better. 
but along with that is the proliferation of pornography, of money laundering. And that is not to say the least about how much time people have spent with their head in their hands, not engaging with other people. And there are so many studies showing how addiction to devices brings mental health issues, anxiety, and other societal problems. Technology is not going to solve humans' problems. You're expecting technology to solve humanity's problems is like putting lipstick on a pig and saying, eventually it's going to be a supermodel, just give it time. It just ain't going to happen. So what can possibly save us from this cancer, from this cancer that infects and touches every part of humanity? Sin is rebellion against God. A debt is owed to God. Scripture says that debt is our lives because the wages of sin is death. Can't redeem ourselves. There are no amounts of good deeds I can do. There is not enough money I can give away. There are not enough nice things I could say to make up for my rebellion against God. Rebellion against an infinite being is an infinite offence and it requires an infinite payment. I can't pay it. You can't pay it. The only one who can satisfy the infinite offence is one who is infinite himself. And he didn't have to. There was nothing imposed on God to make him pay that price, and he chose to. He chose to come into my place, take my sin, and go to the cross so that I can be free. Did the same for you. Did the same for all of humanity. If everything went bad with Adam, it started to come right with Jesus. And I love what Paul says in Colossians 2. He says, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. We weren't just asleep. We weren't having a nap in our sins. We weren't just lost in our sins. We were dead in our sins. Dead, a corpse can't do a single thing. We were dead, there was no hope, there was nothing we could do. And God in his act of mercy and grace says, I'm gonna make you alive because of Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, there was a charge against us. We're standing in the courtroom, we're in the dock and the judge says, guilty, deserving of eternal punishment. And Jesus comes in and says, I'll take it. Let that man go free for everything that he's done, for everything that she's done, I'll take it. Let them go free. Which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away and he nailed it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus Christ came, the God-man and lived a perfectly sinless life, the life that we should have lived, the life that you needed to live and I needed to live but couldn't. And then he went to the cross, totally, totally innocent, to stand in the place where all humanity deserved to be. They put a crown of thorns on his head, thorns, the very symbol of the curse in the garden. He became a curse for us and he offered his life for mine and he offered his life for yours. He plunged his hands into the the thick of the mud and filth of sin and he lifted me out and he lifted you out and he washed you clean. We were on death row 
And he says, I want to trade places with you. There's nothing I did to deserve that. There is nothing you did to deserve that. It is all his amazing grace and love. He loves you that much that he would take the weight of sin upon himself. Jesus made a mockery of sin on the cross. It is wonderful. Exposing it for how horrific and vile it truly is. How futile and foolish it is. Sin promises life and only brings death. Jesus says, come and die with me and I will give you life like you've never experienced it before. We will only truly grasp the incredible grace of God in Jesus on that cross when we realize just how terrible sin is. And when we see the horror of what we've been saved from, we will respond in praise for the one we've been saved for and love and adoration for the one who we've been saved by. If sin is rebellion against God, the antidote is to make him your absolute, unequivocal, supreme treasure. Will you do that today?